welcome back to the 25th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including some of the big lies that the GOP is reportedly telling going into the midterms, how the GOP can reach out to minority voters and take advantage of shifting demographics, and our last story about a historic peace deal or peace agreement that Biden put in motion and hasn't been getting enough credit for. But of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So if you've been paying attention to politics recently or any of the pundits on either side, you probably heard the term red wave. But the, the question I have for you here is, does the Republican Party, do the conservatives really have that momentum that, or at least the projected momentum that we heard about all these months ago? Do you see a red wave engulfing Washington this November? Or will the oceans remain blue? And yes, I do think there's a little bit of a little poetry there. Though I'm not the best with words, I'm trying to delight y'all. So put your comments, put your ideas down there in the comments section, and I'd love to hear what y'all have to say. So let's move on to our first story, coming from Common Dreams. The big lie GOP has some other midterm whoppers up their sleeves. This one is written by Robert Reich, and you know he says that there are three other lies that the GOP is telling in the lead up to these midterms. And when he says lies, he really means framing devices or talking points that aren't necessarily genuine, or at least that he actively tries to disprove here. So we'll start with his first claim. Quote, they claim crime is on the rise because Dems are soft on crime. And you, you know, you've definitely heard this talking point from Republicans ever since the riots in 2019, sorry, 2020, you've seen this talking point over and over and over again. The Republicans absolutely love this one, which is they let this pro- these protests go on in their cities. They continually let these protesters out on bail, even though they had destroyed property, they had lit fires, they had incited violence against certain people that were there in the crowds. And you've seen all these cases over and over again that the Republicans point to and say, yes, the, the Democrats, they are hard to pin down on this one. They're, they're saying that they want to have safe streets, but they're soft on crime. So... You know, it's a repeated point, and Reich is right to point out that, you know, it's not necessarily that simple, and it really never is. Now, if you look at very, very heavily progressive districts, like those in Oregon, and by Oregon I mean Portland specifically, and Seattle, some of these places, and even Minneapolis, some of these places have had prosecutors who let protesters and other uh, first-time offenders off easy when it comes to you know small crimes. And especially in Minneapolis, this was a, a big heated contention point over the uh, attorney general's election, which was 
the prosecutor or the, the attorney general in Minnesota was more focused on policing the cops and ensuring that they're doing their job correctly rather than focusing on petty crimes. And that was a very heated contention point. And I brought that up in a, in a podcast before. So you can see that, you know, not only in these midterms, but also at statewide elections, these points are being brought up that some of these prosecutors are, are soft on crime. And, you know, there's a, there's a quote here that he brings up that really tries to eat at that assumption, tries to, you know, kind of reverse your thinking and give you a little bit more context. Quote, while violent crime rose 28% from 2019 to 2020, gun homicides rose 35%. States that have weakened gun laws have seen gun crime surge. Clearly, a major driver of the national increase in violence is the easy availability of guns. The violence can't be explained by any of the Republican talking points about, quote, soft-on-crime Democrats. Lack of police funding? No. On average, all cities, whether run by Democrats or Republicans, saw an increase in police funding in 2022. Criminal justice reforms? No. Wherever bailout reforms have been implemented, rearrest rates remain stable. Data shows no connection between the policies of progressive prosecutors and changes in crime rates. End quote. And he brings up some great points here. I do want to specifically point out, though, he is talking about violent crime and gun homicides in 2019 and 2020, but then goes on to say that in 2022 there has been more police funding. If you remember, the defund the police movement was very, very heavily focused and was very hot in 2019 and 2020. So saying that, no, 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 you have to remember police funding is actually going up in 2022, you know, he's making a false comparison there. And, you know, maybe the Republicans are doing the exact same thing, saying, oh, look, at they're, they're still defunding the police. But if a Republican were to say, look at what happened when they did defund the police in 2019 and 2020, and look at how much violence there was during that time, gun violence included, then, you know, there's a, that's a more coherent argument. And he's, you know, taking certain data points from different years and trying to smash them together and make an argument. And I think that while he does have some points and all of these data points by themselves explain a very nice story, putting them together and trying to create a cohesive narrative, it, it, it kind of falls apart for me. But that is also because I'm, I'm a little biased, obviously. So, you know, the data the author links here also doesn't necessarily outright say or prove his point. It, it rather highlights that there are these issues, but it, it doesn't boil down to one factor. A lot of the studies that he showed quite literally say uh, it's not this one thing. It's a lot more complicated. And they're all from this uh, from common dreams or from there's one from. Uh, real politics. So a lot of these articles that he links to as evidence of his point actually don't, you know, prove his point exclusively. They actually say it's a lot more complicated than people are making it sound. And him trying to boil it down and make it sound less complicated is not helping anybody in this, in my opinion. But, you know, 
you have to take his opinion or his statements with a grain of salt. He obviously has a political ideology, just as anybody does, and he's bringing up genuine concerns. The fact that the gun homicide rate rose by 35%, you know, he doesn't say that it correlates directly with states that have uh, weakened gun laws, and by that I mean he doesn't provide evidence of that statement, but it is still something of concern that we need to look at and try to address. His second point is that Republicans blame Joe Biden for inflation problems. And I'm just going to go straight to his quote here. Quote, baloney. Biden's spending can't be causing or our current inflation because inflation has broken out everywhere around the world, often at much higher rates than in the U.S. Besides, heavy spending by the U.S. government began in 2020, before the Biden administration, in order to protect Americans and the economy, from the ravages of COVID-19, and it was necessary. Wages can't be pushing inflation because wages have been increasing at a slower pace than prices, leaving most workers worse off. The major cause of the current inflation is the global post-pandemic shortage of all sorts of things, coupled with Putin's war in Ukraine and China's lockdowns, end quote. And once again, I think that he is neglecting to take in all the points he is taking oh look okay yeah we have our uh shortage after the pandemic we have putin's war in ukraine china's lockdown one of the largest manufacturers in the world oil prices now being raised by opec leaders uh the u.s but you also have to remember the u.s though is still it is still a net exporter of uh petroleum and fossil fuels has not opened up enough new drilling locations and allowed enough new permits to fully subsidize our own market and ensure that we can be an exporter while also having enough gas so that we don't have to import as much. And also the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, um, Build Back Better when it was initially proposed, they were all huge spending bills or in this case, reconciliation bills, because they had to reconcile the budget and they couldn't get it through the Senate without a majority vote if it was an actual budget bill. So, I'm sorry, unless it was an actual bill. The reason that it was a reconciliation bill is because they only have 50 Democrats and then Kamala Harris to break the tie. So the only way they could get these things through is by proposing a new budget, essentially. It's kind of a workaround. But his point here is that, oh, no, no, that's not causing current inflation. No, no, no Republican is saying that is the sole cause of inflation. But if you look at the basic economic principles, if you inject more money into the economy, if you have too much money chasing not enough goods, which happens because of the supply chain issues, because of China's lockdowns, then all of these factors together are going to make inflation worse. And I'm not saying that one alone causes it, but to deny that these bills are putting more money into the economy and therefore, meaning every single American has less buying power and therefore ratcheting up inflation, that is a little bit ignorant. And I understand, once again, he's coming from his political side of the aisle, but I don't think there are many Republicans who will say it is only the Inflation Reduction Act. They'll acknowledge these other pressures, but they are trying to point out what they believe is politically prudent for them, which is a little bit naive. They need to also say the entire 
story. They need to tell the entire story, not just try to make it a political talking point about, oh, Joe Biden's bill. Because people that don't know basic economics, they might genuinely believe it's just the Biden's spending plans. And they may be hesitant in the future when there are necessary spending plans that genuinely help Americans. They may be hesitant in the future to support those bills and get people in that will support those bills because in their mind, oh, oh, reckless spending is never good or a large amount of spending is never good. If the U.S. can fund it properly, if we can ensure that we have the funding before we do something and it is also not going to absolutely destroy the budget and the benefits that it brings are worth the costs that we're incurring, then sometimes we do have to genuinely consider making bills that expand the budget and add things in that, you know, wouldn't have been there five or ten years ago. It's just one of those battles that we're constantly going for. We should be cutting programs that aren't working, installing new ones that do with that money that we just got back from cutting those programs that don't work. So I think the author's making a point here that I don't necessarily agree with, but I do like that they're trying to encompass multiple points of attack. They're not just saying it's one thing, like, oh, it's just Putin's war, or it's just lockdowns in China, even though these are the main talking points that we've heard for the last few months from the Democrats. And the third big lie is about the 87,000 IRS agents debacle. Quote, the Inflation Reduction Act passed in July provides funding to begin to get IRS staffing back to what it was before 2010, after which Republicans cut staff by roughly 30%, despite increases since then in the number of Americans filing tax returns. The extra staff are needed to prevent high-end tax evasion, which is more difficult to root out. The ultra-wealthy hire squads of accountants and tax attorneys to hide their taxable incomes. It's estimated that the richest 1% are hiding about 20% of their earnings from the IRS. The Treasury Department and the IRS have made it clear that audit rates for houses earning 400000 or under will remain the same. And, you know, this this one has definitely been overblown by the Republicans. I'll give the author this. Um, you know, the Republicans have really honed in on this one, and they've tried to make it an issue of government versus the people, which to some degree it is. I don't necessarily think we need a whole bunch of hawks breathing down our back. And the Democrats are saying, well, no, it's only going to focus on wealthy individuals. But there are only so many wealthy un- individuals And in order to meet their quotas, in order to ensure that they're getting their bonuses at the IRS, they may end up auditing people that do fall underneath that line of 400,000. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Everybody should, to some degree, be checked to make sure that they are not evading taxes. The real question for me is, why has the IRS been stockpiling ammunition? And I understand the argument that sometimes they have to go out and people are hostile, but they've been stockpiling ammunition for a while now. And, it, you know, it doesn't give me any sort of hope or good feeling when a government agency that is not intended to enforce the law, criminal law especially, like the FBI, is stockpiling ammunition. Then again, there's probably a great reason for it that I'm too ignorant to fully understand. So if you feel that way, put it down in the comments. And, you know, I said I was only going to spend about 10 minutes on this one. We've ended up spending 15. So let's go on to our next story, which comes from Real Clear Politics. 
the GOP must reach minority voters before November. Here's how. With Joe Biden's approval rating so low and the economy in shambles and full control of the House and the Senate in the Dems' hands, Republicans are, have an opportunity here to win in November. And, you know, there's a, a really good question that a lot of Republicans need to ask, which is, do we want to create a new coalition? Do we want to create a super coalition of people that are dissatisfied with the Democrats? And that's a rhetorical question, because of course you do. Of course you want to have a powerful coalition going into a midterm year that you can possibly retain going into a presidential election. But the Republicans have been going about it the wrong way. They've really been bringing in over the last few years, if you haven't noticed, they've been speaking to the working man. They've been talking to the blue-collar worker, the people that feel that they're not normally heard or at least haven't been heard ever since unions have lost power or a large majority of their power in the U.S. And the Republicans are speaking to these type of people again. But they're not going for the growing demographics, which is the Hispanic population, the Asian population, the black population, all of these different minority groups that have historically voted Democrat. And this is a time when both the House, the Senate, the presidency are all controlled by Democrats that people can really feel the hurt in their pocketbook right now. And the Republicans, the article argues, have a strategic opportunity to peel off some of those, you know, moderate Democrats, some of those independents and uh, some of these minority voters and really bring them into the Republican wing while there's such an obvious example of mismanagement in their, in the GOP's opinion, at the federal level. Quote, But talk of dramatic GOP waves has all but stopped in recent months. The red wave could amount to a red trickle, <laughs> with Democrats staving off Republican gains in the U.S. Senate. According to the most recent real clear politics projections, and perhaps capturing a number of 35 toss-up districts amounted to a slim Republican majority come in January. How could this be? After Jimmy Carter-like economic malaise and embarrassing retreat in Afghanistan and a false pledge of unity from the president, how do Democrats have a fighting chance at retaining control of Congress? End quote. And like I was just saying, it's, it's the GOP not reaching that full pool of potential voters. They're not grabbing everybody that they could. They ha are not properly speaking to those groups that I was referring to here a minute ago. You know, they're, they're definitely capturing some of the disaffected liberals and some of the moderates, but there's a broader swath here, and their messaging has always been off. So what this author really brings up is that Republicans for generations, not generations, for years upon years, for many different ele election cycles, especially ever since Obama formed his minority coalition to get into office, have really discounted and kind of written off these communities that have historically voted Democrat. And that even goes for just city districts, not even talking about by ethnic or racial makeup. They have just looked at an area and said, oh, that's too heavily blue. We're never going to win there. They're not making strides. They're writing it off, and they're trying to find their new base or find the, the love for them out in these country areas that have you know, 
really they they have a lot of electoral power because of the way our electoral system works, but they are not densely populated. And if they went into some of these cities like Baltimore that have historically voted Democrat and they tried to advertise there and make inroads there, there are a lot more people who are more densely packed in Baltimore. And you can be a lot more effective and get a lot more talking done at a town hall there than if you come out here to Shenandoah County and have a town hall. You'll probably have maybe 100 people here. In Baltimore, you could have up to 1,000 in some of the right locations. So they just need to be more effective in the way that they're relaying their message to these areas. But also, they need to get over the fear of relaying the message to these areas. They need to step back and say, okay, like I said earlier, there's an opportunity here. People are seeing what it's like when there's a fully democratic administration in place. And they're not actually helping the American people. That's the argument the GOP needs to make. At least as if I was a political strategist standing on the outside, that's the argument the GOP needs to make. And that's the argument that a lot of them are making. But they're just making it in the wrong places. They're not speaking to people that may be disaffected. And the author here gives us a, a nice breakdown of the, the shift that I've been talking about. Quote, in the last 10 years, non-white working class voters have shifted an amazing 19 points towards Republicans. Many typically Democrat Democrats identify as moderate or conservative, including a strong majority of black and Hispanic Democrats. These voters don't support gender ideology in the classroom, subsidies for college graduates, or abortion in the third trimester. If the GOP reaches out to them before November, they may be able to earn their votes and flip Congress in the process. End quote. And, you know, as these people love to say, as any Republican or any Democrat has said for generations, and I say generations because it has been a longstanding political joke, these groups are not a monolith. These groups are not a monolith, okay? Keep that in your head. Just because they voted one way in the past does not mean they will continue to vote one way. Just because working-class Americans used to vote Democrat because of their union support, it doesn't mean that they're going to vote not vote Republican now if you speak to them and really try to talk to them and speak about the issues they care about. And there's Republican groups that have really narrowed in on this shifting demographic change and the amount of people, the opportunity that's out there to speak to some of these minority groups. Um, it's one of the groups, the author actually founded this one, is called Catalyst PAC. Quote, has an un- ambitious plan to reach voters in a number of U.S. House and pivotal Senate races where GOP campaigns are spending tens of millions of dollars but are often failing to engage with the key voting groups, like Asians and Hispanics. Many of these voters conduct their daily lives in another language, be it Spanish, Hindi, or Korean. The districts we're targeting are highly diverse. Look at Indiana's first congressional district, where black Air Force veteran Jennifer Ruth Green is vying to upset a 100-year Democratic streak in a district that has over a third black and Hispanic population. In Connecticut's 5th District, stellar GOP recruit George Logan is aiming to flip a highly diverse district with Republican roots. So, end quote. So you can really see here that some of these strategic strategists are noticing this, and they're not writing off these groups anymore, and they're not writing off areas that have been 
historically Democrat. And they're saying, we can make inroads. We can really take advantage of this and flip it. And it may not be a permanent flip. These people may see Republicans get in and they don't do exactly what they want and they may end up voting Democrat next year. But all you have to do is chip away once. All you have to do is prove that it's worth fighting for. And then in the future, the Republicans will put more resources there and they will continue to fight. And one of the very beautiful things that I think this uh, this group Catalyst Pack has done is they noticed that a lot of radio stations play you know advertisements for Republicans, but then when they were t- learning about the Hispanic versions or the Spanish speaking versions of the radio stations, they weren't advertising any ads in Spanish. They were not sending, Republicans were not sending any out. And all you would hear is Democrat ads. So, you know, they started to implement ads in these Hispanic radio stations. And they realized that, hey, this is a, this is an opportunity. If you're a marketer, let's put it this way. I'll, I'll make it a little bit simpler for my business folks out there. If you're a marketer, why are you just marketing in one language, in a country that is extremely diverse and has an ever-growing population of Hispanic people. And even if they can speak English, it doesn't matter. Why not speak to them in their native language? Why not make them feel comfortable engaging? Why do you insist on it being in English? You know, at the end of the day, you're going to increase your market share if you run ads in English and in Spanish. And that's what these PAC members are realizing, and they're trying to spread the influence and they're trying to ensure that their message gets as wide as possible and going through different routes that they haven't done before. So if the Republican Party continues on this path and they they realize that there's more to this battle than, you know, oh, we, we need to really get the working class people out there. We need to make sure that these districts that have a little bit of outweighted control in the Electoral College because That's how our system works. We need to make sure that they're on our side. We need to speak to these small towns. That's great. But also speak to the portion of the population that is not in love with what the Democrats are doing right now, that are feeling the pressure, the economic pressure, the social pressure that the Democrats are putting on. And, yeah, that's just my opinion as a political analyst. And let's be clear, I'm not a political analyst. I am not a political strategic person. Now, then again, you know, I am analyzing politics right now. But what I mean is I am not paid for it. So at the end of the day, if a Republican candidate hears this somehow, if they hear this, uh, you know, they really think I'm crazy. Okay, I'm crazy. Fine. At least debate me in the comments about it, because I would love to hear your all's opinions. All right. So we have our our last story here. It's going to be a real quick one. It comes from the Washington Post. Biden just pulled off a big diplomatic victory and almost no one noticed. And I'll ask you a question. Did you hear about this agreement between Israel and Lebanon that was reached on October 11th? I know that I personally did not hear about it whatsoever, and I'm surprised that it's not being talked about more. Quote, Israel and Lebanon announced an agreement that would demarcate their maritime boundary. This sounds narrow and technical, but is a major achievement given that the two countries have formally been at war since 1948, and that has led to military conflict, most recently in 2006. The two countries don't have an internationally recognized land border, and they don't have a maritime border either. 
that has been an invitation to conflict and an impediment to the exploitation of large natural gas fields off their coasts, end quote. And this agreement came, and they've decided what a formal maritime border will look like. They've allowed drilling rights to certain companies. They said, Israel, you're allowed to drill here. We're not going to be in conflict with you. And this really goes in tandem with the new discovery of natural gas in an oil deposit that uh, Israel found less than a month ago. So now, it's it wasn't in conflicted waters, but now half of their rigs that were in quote-unquote, conflicted waters, areas that were not necessarily determined to be Lebanon or Israel, this is really going to help their natural gas drilling off the coast of Israel. So this agreement really is historic. And like I said or mentioned from the quote, they are formally at war. They have been at war since 1948. Think about that. That's over 75, sorry, 74 years That's insane. This is a step in the right direction, at least for peace in my mind. But there are some people who disagree. Former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, called the agreement weak and conciliatory. And, you know, he always took a hard line towards Lebanon. So I understand why he he says that. And, of course, he has to, you know, keep his political face on and ensure that he's always on top of the ball so he can get reelected and rebuild his coalition. But in my opinion, this is a big move. But, you know, this is a a really big step. And I think it really shows that when we put in the effort in these areas, and why I say we is because this was helped along by the Biden administration. So, quote, Amos J. Hochstein, a former senator staffer, energy industry executive, and veteran of the Obama State Department, who is the presidential coordinator for energy security. He launched a fresh round of subtle diplomacy at the beginning of the year, commuting from Tel Aviv to Beirut, a trip that usually required stopovers in third countries because there is no direct air or road links between Israel and Lebanon. Quote, I've worked a lot and I've worked hard, he told me. This is probably the hardest thing I've ever done, end quote. So this is a, you know, a big step, and the fact that Biden had a strategic man in place to ensure that these negotiations went well, even though, as he says, uh, Mr. Amos says, the both sides were very, very skeptical, and they were very suspicious of this kind of agreement. You know, the fact that Biden got this done is is admirable, and we have to point out the good things that I know I've ragged on Biden before. But just like people ragged on Trump, and I've ragged on Trump for some of the things he said too, we have to point out the good things that they do. We have to give them praise for the good things they do, even though it is their job and they should be doing it anyway, to ensure that they know we respect what they're doing and we like what they're doing so they keep doing it. We have to give them praise and make sure that they're aware of how much we enjoy some of their policies, including this one. And this is just as historic as the Abraham Accords. The author says it's even more historic because, you know, the people that joined the Abraham Accords haven't been at war with Israel like Lebanon has for all these years. But either way, both of these, the Abraham Accords and this agreement between Lebanon and Israel are very historic, and they both des- both presidents deserve their credit for what they're doing. And give them a little bit of praise. If you want to send them something on Twitter, I don't think he really cares, but... 
you know, I think it's interesting that it's not talked about more. Maybe it's because the Democrats are trying to distance themselves from Joe Biden, or maybe it's because certain Democrats don't really care about Israel problems. Some of them have been openly anti-Israel. Maybe that's why it's not being covered as much. But I just thought I would bring it to your attention and make sure that you guys, you know, hear about something that's happening on the international stage that may not be covered by everybody else. So with that said, even though that was a positive story, we're going to go to an even more positive story. We're going to go to our daily delight. The animal from the animal rescue site rescued deer, dog, and cat cuddle tiny kitten in adorable video. So Monkey is a new addition to a rescue family's army of pets, and he spent his first few days making friends with everybody on the property. Quote, introducing new pets to the pack can be stressful, but thankfully for Monkey, everyone ended up loving him. In fact, all the other rescue animals took on a role of a doting mother and completely loved on him and cuddled the little kitten. In a sweet video shared on TikTok, you can see deer, dogs, and cats huddled around the tiny kitten, offering kisses, cuddles, and general protection. It's so sweet. And honestly, I'm jealous of how much attention this little guy is getting. Goodness. Quote, it just goes to show that love really knows no bounds, and it doesn't matter what the animals that are different species, they love each other anyway and act like family. End quote. And doesn't that really speak to what's going on in America? We may come from totally different backgrounds. We may have totally different experiences, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all Americans. They're all animals. They can all love each other. We're all Americans. We can all love each other. Not to get sappy on you guys. I'm going to cry a little bit. So if you want to see any of the cute videos mentioned in this article or read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below, that like and subscribe button. Also, go down there. I have my Twitter handle there, at uh, your daily flip. Follow me there for convenient news. Uh, I put out something every single day. Some days it is a link to the podcast, but other than that, there's normally commentary or retweets or comments on other people's news stories and major stories that are going on around the U.S. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>